Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Patrick Curtis, your host and chief monkey, and this is the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Join me as I talk to some of the community's most successful and inspirational members to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. In this episode, member M. Ledyard shares her path from working in corporate development at International Paper and moving up the ranks to her eventual transition to investment banking. In this first part of a two-part episode, Megan gives us a detailed look at her thought process of why she started in CorpDev at such a large firm and how she continually got promoted. We also explore how she had to hustle to land an investment banking associate offer out of Booth since she was in the night program. Enjoy. All right, Megan, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Yeah, happy to be here today. Thanks so much for having me. So it'd be great if you could give the listeners just a short uh, summary of your background to start. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to do so. I graduated from Ohio State back in 2004 with a concentration in accounting. I moved on to a company called International Paper that was headquartered in Memphis, Tennessee. I spent about eight years with International Paper, predominantly in a finance and management rotational program. I spent about half my time in corporate development and strategy, and the other half of my time out in the field in various operations and uh, financial management roles. During my time in corporate development and strategy, I worked on the acquisitions of Warehouser, which is a $6.3 billion carve-out of their packaging business, mm-hmm. and then the hostile takeover of Temple Inlands, about a $4.1 billion hostile takeover. It's a big one. I also did uh, <laughs> <laughs> one. Um, I also did the uh, industrial packaging's first acquisition in New Mexico, uh, which allowed us to grow our platform and get comfortable operating in that country. During the time period, I also started my MBA at Chicago Booth, and it was a wonderful experience in the combination of both international paper and Chicago Booth led me to pursue a career in investment banking. So I joined Morgan Stanley in August of 2013 within their investment banking practice, specifically in their consumer retail group. I had a wonderful six years at Morgan Stanley, but I chose to leave uh, actually this year as a third-year VP as I wanted to get back to the corporate side of the world. So I joined uh, Ingredion as director of M&A to lead the global M&A efforts. I'm also very happy to be back home in Chicago. And can you give me a little uh, background in terms of what what does Ingredion do? Or what what industry? Yeah, it's actually the smallest company I've ever worked for, mm-hmm. and I did that by strategy. Um, 
It's a six to seven billion dollar revenue business globally. Um, actually, most of the revenues are earned outside of the U.S. Mm-hmm. And it focuses on ingredients, starches, and sweeteners for okay. most of your major food and beverage companies. Okay, cool. Um, including um, also including pharmaceuticals and uh, some household and personal care businesses. Very cool. Well, thank you for that quick rundown. There's a lot to unpack here, <laughs> um, but I, I think maybe let's let's start all the way not all the way back, but all the way back at um, Ohio State. I guess you know the decision to major in accounting and kind of was what was on your radar as you were going through undergrad. Did you have some internships in accounting? Was it always like accounting or bust, or what kind of led you down that path? Yeah. Well, I like probably most undergrads. I switched my major probably a dozen times. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I learned about myself is I love economics. And accounting for me was economics applied. But I still needed to think through what I, what was I going to do after undergrad. So to your point, your question, I did do a variety of different internships. Mm-hmm. Um, my first internship was with an off Wall Street bank down in Memphis, Tennessee called Morgan Keegan. Mm-hmm. It has since been acquired by a couple of different banks. But I worked on the fixed income trading floor back in research. And what I learned is I loved observing capital markets. I did not want to be a broker or a trader. <laughs> um, tell me why. I worked on a couple tell me, of projects. Tell me why you felt like it wasn't a good fit for you. Yeah. I think for me as a trader, um, what I really saw was, you know, there's a learning curve to understand the markets and the dynamics between the markets. Mm-hmm. But then I saw them as just kind of doing the same thing every day. Okay. Um, and I wanted a little bit more, actually wanted a lot more of an intellectual challenge. Okay. The brokers were really focused on building the relationships with their clients and going out into the market, mm-hmm. but they're selling the same products. And, Got it. And the solutions that I saw for those products, we were very much commodity driven. Um, and so again, I, I didn't see as much of an intellectual challenge on the sales and trading side. That's fair. Okay. And so you I very did much that. like yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, and then what so what other internships? You did an accounting internship, I assume, at some point. Or no? I did. Mm-hmm. I worked um I, I really liked what was going on on the corporate desk at Morgan Keegan and I mm-hmm. thought I really want to see how financial statements get put together. Mm-hmm. So I did a uh, busy season audit internship with Pricewaterhouse Coopers out in San Francisco, specifically focused on financial services. Um wonderful firm. It's fantastic experience, but I didn't like the the audit function. And, you know, it's expressed as a way to really engage with your clients and help give advice. Mm-hmm. But what I felt was, you know, you're kind of seconded into the most horrible conference room. Um, and it's check the numbers, don't ask too many questions. And, uh, you know, try try not to, to stir the pot too much. Got it. Um, did so you feel really like it was, yeah, you were checking it. Did you feel like it just wasn't allowing you, again, similar type of thing. It's you're kind of an entry-level intern role. You're getting a taste of it, but it's super repetitive. Is that what the feeling was? Very repetitive. Yeah. Yeah, and, and the partners were phenomenal. Doors are open. You know, you could come in and ask questions about what they do. And seeing what the, what goes on at a part level could be really interesting, but that 10 to 15 years to make partner, I just kind of felt was, was not my cup of tea. Okay, so that's what your junior year or your your sophomore year internship? Yeah, 
it was a junior going into senior year, correct. And so did you feel lost a little bit? <laughs> like, what am I going to do? Or had you, <laughs> did you have an, an offer coming out of your junior year internship to, to join PW, PWC? And you're like, I can't do this? Or what was the kind of fr- yeah. the thought process? Maybe I couldn't and, do it. And I, and I think also I was really excited about San Francisco, but then I was also got very homesick when I was out there. So I was born and raised broadly in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so coming back to Ohio State, I was like, okay, I'm going to interview for everything. Got it. Um, and that allowed me to really understand what different kind of jobs are out there. There's different kind of accounting jobs that are out there. Um, accounting students from Ohio State, while it is not a finance school, it does not feed into investment banking. Mm-hmm. Um, it does have a very strong accounting program. So it, it did attract a lot of employers from that perspective. And so were you, were you were you mostly just doing interviews my, with like the the big four, or were you branching out to smaller companies as well, mm-hmm. or just everything? I opened I opened up everything. Okay. So um, my dad had worked in business, mm-hmm. so there were a variety of people that he knew in different companies that were just willing to have what I now know is called an informational interview. <laughs> uh, you didn't even realize back then. <laughs> I didn't realize it. That's funny. Um, and then there's a variety of different companies that came on campus to Ohio State for interviews. So if it's something that even sounded even the least bit interesting to me, I applied for it. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to do lots of interviews that spring. Okay. And then what made One you... One of the things that yeah, I found out... Sorry, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, so what, what kind of directed you towards uh, international paper? I had figured out during that spring semester, I was taking a, um, called a senior seminar course in accounting, Mm -hmm. and it focused on, you know, companies that had merged and how did the financial statements change. I've always looked at accounting and financial statements. I love the story that it tells through numbers. Mm -hmm. And I thought, this is it. (laughs) I want to work in and around whatever this is um, because it can be very telling. And I realized in class, I could see through it really quickly where a lot of my peers, it just, it didn't make sense to them. Mm-hmm. So in sharing that with international paper and that, you know, I wanted to have a career in M&A, they were excited. They said, oh, that's great. We just bought this private company, Box USA, da 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 Okay. So, they, so it was perfect because so they, had somewhere, they uh, had somewhere for you to work right away. It was like, okay, yeah, this is perfect. We can know where to put you. Okay. You, have, you had actually some direction, which for an undergrad is pretty impressive. It, uh, doing the internships really helped. I started to learn a lot about what I didn't like. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the self-knowledge and self-awareness of I like numbers and I like problem solving mm-hmm. um, was also very helpful. And I think at the end, that's something that I've carried with me. And you have to be honest in an interview. And there's a, there's a balance of being honest. But when I say honest, you have to be true to yourself. Okay, so I know that there's others that go out in the interview process just to get the job right. and decide later. Right. I feel like that was using the benefit of kind of saying, is this a good spot for me? That was very much me. I graduated in 2002 from undergrad and it was like Mm -hmm. a bloodbath in terms of just no jobs. (laughs) And especially, well, you know, I ended up, I ended up landing an investment banking job at Rothschild, but it was like one of the last interviews I'd struck out almost everywhere. And at that point it was just like, get a job, you know? (laughs) Um, So, I mean, it's interesting that you say that you had a lot of kind of, I feel like you had a lot of, um, introspection for for a senior in college to to be able to go through all of that. So that was great. I'm looking back at like I appreciate that. 
all the roles you had at international it seems like every year or so you would kind of pivot was that is that by design with with them was it like an F, fldp is it, should we consider it like a financial leadership development program where they're putting you through rotations or is it just is just you kind of raised your hand like no and that's yeah. yeah. Well, you know what? I think all of that. So International Paper did not have that formalized rotational program. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, I had, I was lucky enough. And sometimes I say the harder you work, the luckier you get. Yeah. But I was lucky enough to find some really good mentors. And they were the ones that continued to be focused on my early development and pushed me to try different roles. And it goes back to that, you know, I went in and I started at a, you know, facility controller, and that went well. So then I went in to do this first m role, and that went well. You know, yeah. and that's kind of how the career progression goes. What's, I, what's interesting know, to me is that I, you started kind of, con- you started controller, then you kind of went to that M&A corp debt, or, or what you might call corporate development and strategy, right? And then your next role mm-hmm. was what was called an operations manager. Is that correct? Correct. And yeah. wh- what was that pivot? <laughs> what was that pivot about? Because it sounds inter- like, at least for a lot of the people on Wall Street Oasis, it's, it would be, like corp dev and strategy for them, I think would be the place they want to be because they think M&A, you know, M&A. Yeah. Why did you leave the corp dev and strategy team? Why didn't you just kind of go up the ranks there? Because eventually you ended up back there, right? Eventually. I did. So tell yeah. me why all the other stuff with the operations and the plant control or all the other stuff. I'm just curious about that. Or maybe that's part of it. I was, no, it, it, everything, everything is interconnected. Mm-hmm. Um, international paper values general managers as most companies do. Mm-hmm. They want someone who can kind of do a tripod, if you will. Okay. You know, one of the pods is finance and accounting. Another pod is sales and marketing, and the third pod is operations and manufacturing. Got it. And you know, you'll be a black belt in one. You'll be fluent in a second one, and then you can kind of operate or understand the third. Um, and so I had that, that was kind of my third leg to develop as operations. So on the advice of mentors, you know, and I got, and I got to live in Los Angeles and I got to tell you <laughs> manufacturing companies, you don't often get to live in, the in LA. So I true, true. Um, I learned a lot about myself. Um, I learned that, you know, the general management path is just not something that I was very interested in. Mm-hmm. And I very much enjoyed the, the finance and accounting side of the world. So instead of being a quote unquote generalist, I wanted to be focused on more quote unquote specialist. Did you feel like they were grooming you for senior leadership at some point since you were there for so long? Like, was that, was that kind of in the plans? <laughs> yeah, no. And that was, that was acknowledged that I was. So every, every company has something they call um, an HP list, a high potential list. Mm-hmm. And then there's an HP plus list, which is usually uh, to be a company officer. Um, and so Tell me how competitive that is. Give me, give me, give me some of the numbers around how competitive it is in terms of how many people are just generally in corp dev or strategy. How many people are on that plus list, like, or the the HP list and then the HP plus list, and how what does that do in terms of your career? Like, just generally speaking, you know, obviously not exact numbers, but just broadly speaking. I'll be honest with you. I actually have. (laughs) I don't really know. I know it varies company to company. I'm Mm -hmm. gonna. I'll broadly say that an HP plus list is probably less than 10%. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say that it's, it's, once you're on it, there's a certain element of staying on it. Because once you fall off of it, as I've seen, it's harder to get back on it. It's weird. It's kind of, and I see the same thing in banking. 
mm-hmm. you know, someone is um, is the top bucket. Yep. And they can stay top bucket. But once you fall out of top bucket, it's hard <laughs> to get back in the top bucket. Interesting. Um, so it's like you got to keep grinding. Bucket, you got to keep grinding. <laughs> how to grind. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And, and, and part of it's that, but the other part of it is you can't sacrifice the result. Um, you can't sacrifice the relationship that you have with your peers and that you have with your leadership just for the results. And that's a very fine line to walk. Um, and sometimes that means giving up some of that value creation, if you will, or doing it perfectly. Can you um, give me an example? In order of, to make sure that you're can you really holding all of it. Can you give me an example of that? Like just to give it a little more, make it a little more concrete. Like was there a time um, that you felt like you had to leave value on the table in terms of your work to appease a relationship of some sort? Or I don't, I don't know, in terms of like yeah, giving I other think, people work and giving them the spotlight? I, yeah. I don't know. Well, I think, I think what it comes down to more so, and I think it's, it's crisper to give it in a corporate development context, mm-hmm. um, banking, there's kind of a lot of different nuances to banking. Sure. Um, but as you're, let's say you're building a business case to do an acquisition and you're sitting in the, in the valuation seat and you're running the numbers and you're like, but you know, if I can do my revenue build and I can have all of these six assumptions and I can get them down to the fine line, like then I know that that number is good. We can go to the CFO and say, super solid on growth rate. But in order to sometimes get those assumptions, you're grinding your marketing department and your sales leads, and they just can't get down to that level of detail. So you can push them and push them and push them, but really you're starting to get to a margin of error that's not really material. If I'm going in for a non-binding bid, I, I want to be negotiating a good faith, right? I mm-hmm. don't want to have to come too far off of my my value that I'm putting on the table. That's fair. So yep. I have to balance my margin of error with how much you really grind your business partners and how precise you really need to be. So it's, it's really um, a question goal, of... Their way of going about it okay. may not be your way. Right. So it's, it, you're saying... In the initial like non-binding offer, you don't want to basically burn a lot of the relationships internally to try and get like to the exact precision, and it's it's better to sometimes have just a wider range in terms on the on the initial indication of interest. Exactly. Okay. Um, and it could be things that you're going to include for value creation or not. Did you struggle with that? Um, Did you struggle because you wanted to get more precise and and like letting that go a little bit? Yeah, I felt like I had to be super precise. Yeah. Um, I remember my early days at IP, I never felt like I could put this phrase good enough and senior vice president in the same sentence. <laughs> um, so I had to really learn how to manage expectations mm-hmm. in a way where people didn't think I was, you know, trying to get out of doing the assignment or get out of, you know, doing a detailed analysis, but was really all about what, what can I give you and how fast can I get it to you? with what level of precision and have somebody view me saying, okay, she's on my team. She's really trying to help me out. Yeah. Okay. I get this versus having them view it as I'm fighting them. Right. Got it. Any like tips in terms of how to reach that balance? I mean, it's probably just experience, but is, is there man, it sounds like you had to manage up a little bit um, or a lot. Um, Absolutely. And so t- and you, you talk- have to do that a lot in banking. 
a lot. Can you talk to that a little bit? Let's let's um, go there. Just in terms of you know any advice you have in terms of how to manage up successfully. Obviously, communication is important. Developing that relationship, but anything specific in terms of um, just I don't know, maybe tactical in terms of how to succeed in that in that avenue. Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it's going to start with your staffer and that relationship that you build with your staffer. Obviously, different. Um, you know, different assignments are going to come down and you, you may be hitting burnout and you're like, man, I cannot do one more cell side. It is a total grind. Mm-hmm. So part of it's important to one articulate, you know, am I burnt out and do I need a break? And the second is to be able to go back to your staff and say, I really want to help out this team on the cell side. I currently have X, Y, Z on my plate and I don't want to shortchange them on that project. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes you have to flag that you're getting burnt out and you just need like a, a, a weekend or a weekend day off. But if you, <laughs> what a, what a request <laughs> a I whole know. weekend. And, Come on. <laughs> oh, I know. I know. Sometimes it, it, it is brutal. There's yeah. No lie about that. So let's, let's but go. You can frame it as, yeah, sorry, go ahead. I really want to take the assignment and mm-hmm. I also have these other projects that I think are conflicting with it. And I don't want to shortchange that group. Right. Um, can we move something around or can I pass on this one and I'll, I'll take the next one? Right. Because I've, I've been a staffer. It is a horrendous job. Yeah. And I'm not, I don't know what's going on with everyone's deal. So I do rely on that analyst or that associate to tell me, hey, this is what's going on. And yeah. I will also tell you, we know, <laughs> not as like a scary thing, but like it's known. Who tries to back off at work? Yeah. Um, so you have to be. Oh, even the analysts know. Even the analysts know. I know in my class, it was very obvious who was, <laughs> who was just getting out of work all the time, and versus who was, uh, you yeah. know, really taking the brunt of it. Um, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I guess going back to your story, so you're you're at an international paper for a good seven plus years, almost eight years. Did you feel like yeah. you were going to be a lifer? At one point, <laughs> at this one company, you know, yeah, right I had totally. I had no intention of leaving. Mm-hmm. Um, I did my MBA at Chicago Booth in the evening weekend program mm-hmm. because I wanted to accelerate my career, and I had been in corporate development strategy in the business group, mm-hmm. and I wanted to make it to the global team and do that. You know, have that be my career. Um, and I, and I did that on the council of the gentleman who was running the global team at that time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I made the career switch because I looked at the path forward in my conversations with him and I wasn't going to have the M&A career that I wanted to have at international paper. Um, In terms of just, they weren't going to be, they weren't going to be as acquisitive as you thought or they, or just other reasons because you weren't going to get the, the frontline exposure. I think, you know, part of it, they weren't going to be as acquisitive after we did the hostile takeover of Temple Inland. Mm-hmm. And then they've continued to do deals. But when you think about corporates, yep. the, the corporate development M&A function is very different than when you think about in a bank. And specifically, in a corporation, if you're not bringing in revenue, you're a cost center. So you need to keep your teams pretty lean. Um, and that is completely understandable. Mm-hmm. So... While he typically had a three-person team after the 2009 recession and then getting the Temple Inland deal done, down a person, he decided that 
he was not going to go back to a full team. He was going to keep it as himself and then one of his directors. Just to keep his um, costs low. So you felt like the opportunity while you exactly. were while you were getting that MBA, that opportunity to kind of go back almost vanished or became much less attractive um, in terms of... Uh, became much less attractive because yeah. there was certainly a need for that kind of role sorting through the businesses. Yeah. Um, but as I looked at what the other, what the finance career option was looking like internally, it just was not attractive to me. And like I said, very early on, I need an intellectual challenge. So when Um, did M&A provides that for me? When was banking on the radar? Was it something you had known when you were at international pay or IP? Would you, had you thought about it prior in the prior seven years in investment banking? Was it on the radar at all? Or did it take the, the MBA to kind of put it on your radar? You know, obviously, I worked with a lot of bankers when I was at International Paper, mm-hmm. and I partially understood what they did. Um, but what I couldn't figure, what I couldn't figure out from your bankers was, what do you do when you're not running a spreadsheet? <laughs> um, what do you do when you're not putting PowerPoints together? I didn't quite understand it. Nothing. So <laughs> it's just PowerPoint and Excel. Yeah, no, just well. kidding. <laughs> no, if you're at the VP level, you're doing a lot more. You're doing a lot more. You're doing actual business dev, right? But um, sorry, go ahead. So, so you had a summer associate position at a at a bulge bracket. I did. That gave you a little bit I of a did. taste. I Tell did. me about that summer. That summer for me, it was summer of 2012. So from a deal flow perspective, it was actually pretty quiet. Mm-hmm. And I had, when I was recruiting for internships, again, I had to do it on my own because I was not part of the full-time program. Yep. I only looked at um, M&A boutiques and in M&A groups within the bulge bracket firms. So I landed in the M&A department at a bulge bracket firm, and they were fantastic. Was that um, tough to land? But- was that, t- that that summer associate position, given you were in the night program, you weren't full-time MBA, was it tough or did you feel like there was some support or you were just a natural networker? How did you kind of get those interviews onto that cycle? Yeah, no, that's totally fair. Um, part of the way I got onto that was one, the relationships I'd made with bankers when I was at International Paper. Fair, okay. And mm-hmm. you know, it was kind of going through that process and chatting with them about what they did and if this would make sense. And then two, the career services team at Chicago Booth is actually very helpful to me in helping me understand what the recruiting process would look like. Okay. And while I couldn't have access to all the on-campus events, um, they were very constructive in saying, you know, if you want to do this the right way, and it kind of goes back to um, being very vigilant about actions and words and communication and kind of making sure you keep on the up and up with everything. Mm-hmm. I tried to make sure I understood the rules. Right. for the recruiting for the full-time students so I could abide by them. Meaning, if a bank was hoping, hosting an event on campus, that was for the full-time students. But if they invited me to the drinks event after, I would go to that. Got and it. a lot of the full-time students and the bankers picked up on this, said, we didn't see you on campus. And I had to explain that that was against the rules for me, but I was you know, delighted to come in and, and have this conversation with them. And then they also realized how long I had to drive to get there. <laughs> um, so I actually ended up winning a lot of points, not only with my peers in the Fulton program, but then also with bankers. What you, how long did you, how do. long did you have to drive? Why were you driving so far? If you were in the night? Oh, I was working, yeah. I was the control at a facility outside of Chicago. Oh my gosh. So I was driving, um, an hour and a half one way to get to downtown Chicago. <laughs> 
Nice. So like an hour and a half cocktail hour. Yep. So then turn around and drive home and get up and go to work the next day. It worked. Um, okay. <laughs> it, it, you know, it, it ended up working out pretty well. Okay. But, you know, when the bank saw that I was, I was following the rules and I was taking it upon myself to do it the right way, and even though it was the amount of commitment that I had mm-hmm. in order to do it, um, it certainly won me a lot of brownie points. And then in addition to that, I also made some trips to New York on my own. Um, again, kind of networking through the booth network. Okay. But I paid, you know, I took myself out there and tried to have the coffee chats. And again, I think that spoke volumes to the bankers to say she's really committed to this. Right. Um, and, and having Chicago with my resume helps tremendously. Yep. Having corporate development and international paper helps tremendously. Yep. Um, so a lot of different avenues, a lot of different things that I did. That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I, it doesn't surprise me that you made it. It's just it's a little bit more non-traditional, right? So I wanted to hear how you navigated that, and it makes total sense what you did. In terms of just so that summer, was it something where they wanted you to come back and you said no? Was it something where they didn't give you an offer and you were kind of stuck going kind of like from ground zero? Um, yeah, it summer? actually it was it was in between. It was more of a ladder. Um, mm-hmm. So August of 2012 was the first summer the Bulge Brackets had done this. We're putting you on hold situation. So, oh, the hold. Um, they had <laughs> the hired, dreaded hold. Yeah, they hired. Pardon? The dreaded hold situation where you're kind of like waiting in limbo. The, yeah. <laughs> the, the dreaded hold situation. Yeah. So the upside for me was, well, the, the background is they hired six summer associates for the M&A department. Mm-hmm. Two received full-time offers. I was put on hold. And the other three guys got a flat note. And that's a horrible yield for a bank. Yeah, that's, um, that's bad. And so what had happened across Wall Street for the summer of 2012, again, everyone's trying to figure out how to hire coming out of the recession, mm-hmm. is banks across the street underhired. Yep. So what I knew very quickly was there's going to be the horse trading between the middle of August and call it end of September when those with offers are trying to trade up, those who didn't get offers are trying to find a new offer, and so forth. Given I had to do this completely on my own before, I knew exactly what I was getting into. Mm-hmm. Um, and none of the MBA programs really get into the middle of this. It's just really student to, to firm directly. Yep. And the other benefit that I had was my global head of corporate development, you know, tracked along with me. Um, I let him know that I was leaving and why, and we had a long conversation about it. Mm-hmm. He said, let me know how it can be helpful. So because I was a non-traditional student, many banks wouldn't speak to me. But now that I had the introduction from a gentleman who'd been doing deal-making for 35 years and said, she worked for me, she's great, you should talk to her, along with I had an offer on hold from sitting and, you know, people can call them and figure that out. Um, I had a lot of opportunities in the fall. I had a very robust fall recruiting season. Great. And so how so, many how many places do you think you, you interviewed with during that fall? Like five, six? <laughs> so I had my spreadsheet going, yep. as we all do. Yep. Um, at one point, I had 17 tabs, one for each bank Jeez. in each office. So, you know, Morgan Stanley, New York, Morgan Stanley, Chicago, Goldman, New York, Goldman, Chicago, so on and so forth. And what did you keep um, in those tabs out of curiosity, of, like just contacts, notes, um, different groups, yeah. stuff like that? or? Yeah, exactly. It was my way to stay organized. So 
I would keep track of um, each person that I talked to, mm-hmm. uh, high level what we talked about, and then if there was going to be an opportunity to circle back with them or not. Mm-hmm. And um, it also kind of helped me remind me of my next to-dos with each one of those terms. Great. Um, without being crass, going through recruiting season um, on my own like that, um, with as many openings as I had, it felt like I was dating six people <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> it's like I had to keep... I had to keep everything straight. Yeah, no, I'm um, sure. You're like in an interview, you forget what bank you're interviewing at, or you're like, <laughs> you're like remember, I uh, talked to Bob, and they're like, who? <laughs> who? You're like, wrong who? Bank. Oh, wrong bank, yeah. I actually showed up. Yeah, I actually showed up to the wrong bank for an interview. I was supposed to go to them in the afternoon, and I showed up there in the morning. Awesome. Um, <laughs> yeah, I made a very quick change. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> Stay tuned because later this week, the second part of this two-part series will drop. Megan shares with us in that episode a little bit more about her actual banking career, the struggles she had coming in without prior banking experience, and how she eventually got promoted up to VP. And then also what's uh, in store for her next. Hope you guys enjoyed this one. And thanks to you, my listeners at Wall Street Oasis. If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way, patrick at wallstreetoasis.com. Until next time.